Today we're going to talk about suffering. Suffering. Suffering always precedes glory. And it does so many times. Suffering precedes the glory. And, and, and last week we, we took a week off of our friend Habakkuk to talk about Vacation Bible School. I thought Josh did a great job of communicating uh, the love of Christ to our students. And I was able to kind of bring some of those messages into uh, the sanctuary and share it with you guys. And this week we find ourselves going back, back in time to Habakkuk. Remember, uh, it's, Habakkuk is, is a minor prophet. He's the eighth of, of 12 minor prophets. He's tucked away in the Old Testament, right between Nahum and Zephaniah. I can't remember the page number. If you have your Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible, maybe it's 635 if I remember right. The book only has three chapters, 56 verses in all. So it's, it's not a, a very large book for you to read. Great book for you to sit down and read in one setting. And then to go back and follow those rabbit trails as Bill was talking about. The book, we believe, takes place about 605 B.C. We talked about that last time. Israel, once again, has, is in their downswing. We, we see Israel throughout time where they're serving God and then they're running away from God. Serving God and running away from God. And if you remember, uh, Josiah was the king. And when Josiah died, it was a top-down trust in God. So because Josiah trusted God, the nation was trusting in God. But as soon as Josiah died, then everybody just said, oh, you know what, forget it. We'll do what's evil in the sight of God. And that's, that's what's happening. Habakkuk, he's crying out to God. He's saying, this is crazy. These are your people. Why is this happening? He, he could see from afar Nebuchadnezzar's on his way. And, he, and he's going to destroy God's people. And, he, and Habakkuk doesn't understand that. He's not sure why he's doing that. Remember Israel's king is Jehoiakim. Uh, Egypt made him into the king. And he was doing what was evil in the sight of God. So Habakkuk's just trying to figure out, why isn't God responding? Why isn't God answering uh, the way I think he should or, or not answering at all? Why is he quiet? So week one, we heard the cry from Habakkuk. Now in week two of Habakkuk, we're going to hear God's response. Maybe not necessarily God's response directly to what Habakkuk is asking for, but definitely his response. You see, Habakkuk was, to me, he was kind of scared in verses one through four. He's kind of like, what's going on here? Why aren't you answering? Frustrated, maybe, was a better word. Well, after we read verses five through 11, then he should really be scared. He, sh he should be um, surprised and, and no longer wanting to talk to God about this because God's going to give him a response that he's not necessarily going to like initially. So let's dig into his word. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If you will join me in standing, if you're able to and willing, I'm going to read these verses. This is verses 5 through 11 of Habakkuk. And this is God's 
response. So the whole book is, is kind of Habakkuk commenting or asking questions and then God responding or giving his uh, own commentary. And it kind of goes back and forth. So here's God, God's response. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. How many times have we been have we thought that? I can't believe God's doing this. He's telling Habakkuk right away. You couldn't even understand it if I told you. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. He's talking about just the scariness of this, this, the Chaldeans. They're going to come and they're going to destroy and they're going to deal with you. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Just swoop them up. Verse 10. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Well, we're going to talk about three main topics today. Three main topics. One, God's way, his ways are mysterious. We're going to talk about God's ways are misunderstood much of the time, and God's ways are always moral. But we'll hit the first one. God's ways are mysterious. We don't understand what God is thinking. Do you agree with that? We, we can't know what he's thinking. We sometimes think that we can predict based on Scripture, based on our, our own prayers, based on uh, historical references, but we do not know what God's ultimate plan is. We don't know what he's thinking. And one of the ways that he is mysterious is that he sometimes leaves our prayers unanswered. Our prayers get unanswered sometimes, and at least from our point of view. And I'm wondering, have there been prayers in your life, have there been prayers in your life that you've prayed for a period of time, and it just would never get answered. You felt like you didn't have any peace about it, or, or, or it didn't get answered the way that you thought it should be answered. I'll let you ponder that. I remember it was 2 in the morning, and I got a phone call on October 2nd, 2015, and my brother Dan told me that my dad wasn't doing well, and they were rushing him to the hospital. I prayed at that moment, what did I pray for? I prayed for healing. I prayed for keep him alive. I had no idea that he was going to die at that moment, even after talking to my brother. But I truly went to the Lord praying. I never saw him alive. I, by the time I was at the hospital, he was already dead. Why did God not answer my prayer? I thought I was a follower of God. Why was his answer no to me? There were many times where, where I prayed about things and, 
and it just never got answered. I, I don't, I, maybe it was a no. You know, you, maybe you had a, a childhood sweetheart that you thought you were going to marry. Maybe you had a, a different line of work, like Bill was saying, being a farmer or baseball player, or so many times our prayers, when, when we get to the uh, supplication part, it's how can you supply me with this need when I'm not even thinking the big picture? I, I, maybe I say it later on in my message, but not my will, but your will be done. And too often we forget that it is God that we want to please. It shouldn't be ourselves and it shouldn't be our spouse or our children, but in the end, we want God to be pleased with whatever is about to happen, even with all of our great plans that we think we have. Habakkuk, he felt as if God was leaving him without a response. He just continuously prayed, and he felt like there's no response here. God may have been responding to him, but in ways that, that Habakkuk wasn't understanding or, or that Habakkuk just felt like he was being ignored. But you and I, we absolutely can be assured that God hears everything. That he hears absolutely everything that we utter with our voices and with our thoughts. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. He, he already knows everything, all of our thoughts. He knows our prayers. God most assuredly wants us to pray. He wants us to pray. One writer put it that God has created prayer as a means by which we can enjoy him. That's why we pray, so we can enjoy him, our relationship with him. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Prayer was, was also created to confess our sin. That's why we pray. That's why we, we seek answers from God, because we're confessing. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And our prayers are meant to ask him to meet our every need. They really are. We are looking for supplication. We, we have needs as human beings, definitely as, as sinners, as fragile people. We have needs. Psalm 50, 15 says, And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will shall glorify me. You see what it ended at? It's all about God. It's not about us. When we pray, it's all about God. We're talking to the Almighty. We're talking to the Almighty. And prayer is definitely designed so that you and I can align our wills with God. We read it earlier, or I commented earlier, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, Luke twenty-two forty-two. There is one kind of prayer, though, that's always answered. That's absolutely always answered. Luke 18, 13 through 14. Here's what it says. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. It's the prayer of repentance. The humble heart of a repentant person will always be answered. God promises us that. We can call upon him, and he is eager to, to justify and forgive us. He loves. Remember, he says, uh, the angels rejoice over that. But sometimes our prayers go unanswered. And sometimes they go unanswered because of sin in our life. Scripture teaches us that. Sometimes there is a sin in your life that, that you're not dealing with, that you're ignoring, that you're letting go, that you haven't committed to Christ. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you're stuck in a sin, if you're stuck in, in some sort of habitual practice that's against God, you've got to find your way out of that by asking him to help you. Because you want him to guide you out of it. You want him to, to be the one who gets the glory in the end. How many times have I talked to people who are alcoholics or, or, or addicted to certain drugs or, or activities and they're finally free of it? So many times they're giving praise to God. Praise to God Almighty. And that's who gets the praise. When God does hear his followers call out his name many times, he has unexpected responses to our prayers. He has unexpected responses to our prayers. Just looking at Habakkuk today, Habakkuk, he's expecting God to, to do something. He's expecting God to, to help them, to, to get them out of this trouble when, when, when he sees the Chaldeans are on their way. Okay, okay. God's going to help us. We're all good, but God, please answer me. I'm going to keep crying out to you. Instead, God tells Habakkuk that he's given permission to the Chaldeans to actually raise up against Israel. That's not the response he was looking for. I mean, that's a deadly response, potentially, for Habakkuk. He wasn't expecting that. Why would God use evil people? Why would he? Why would God allow people like the Chaldeans to get puffed up after they've dominated? Do you know who the Chaldeans are? They're, they're, they're this um, high-end, influential, wise, smart people. Maybe not wise is not the right word, but brilliant people. They kept track of, of the stars. They were the astrologists. That's, that's how they, the kings knew later on that Jesus was born because they were keeping perfect records of all of that. They were beautifully smart in the sense of knowledge. Many times in Scripture, they're in conjunction with the Babylonians, almost synonymous, but they're, uh, some people refer to them actually as a, um, a social class within the Babylonians. And they were definitely an aggressive group of people, too. 
almost warlike at times. We see that through the decades, I think all the way back to at least 730 uh, BC. We do see in scripture that Abraham, he lived in Ur with the Chaldeans. And God said, he goes, you know what, I'm going to take you out of Ur so you, you and your family and your family's family and the descendants all across can serve God. It's interesting how he said that. I'm taking you out of these people so you can serve God. Chaldeans were tough, man. Interesting, Daniel chapter 3, it's the Chaldeans were Nebuchadnezzar's wise men who advised him to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. Daniel uh, chapter 3. So these guys are brutal. They, they don't care about life. They don't care about people. And God's saying, we're going to raise them up. I'm going to raise them up, and you know what? They're going to take over, because Habakkuk had already seen it north of them, and it's just coming at them. Why would God use this group? Because God uses unique ways to fulfill his plan. He does. God uses unique ways. This was leading to the eventual coming of Jesus Christ. Like you look at all this process and you look at the Old Testament, when we look backwards, we can see all of it worked to get to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was in that particular setting with those particular leaders in place. And all of it had to happen because God has unique ways of getting to where he wants to go. I think of Joseph. We've talked about that months ago. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold to slave, to, to slave traders. They sold him. Why would Joseph have to go through that? Well, then Joseph was put into some leadership role. Then he gets falsely accused. You guys remember the story? And then, and then Joseph gets thrown into jail again. Are you kidding me? What, 13 years, if I remember right, is our estimated time he was in prison again? I wonder if he had Dave go there and teach him classes. He's sitting in this dungeon. What in the world? Why? Well, because in the end, because in the end, that got him an audience with Pharaoh. You see, if, if he wouldn't have gone through that path, he would have never been in the prison to be with the Pharaoh's people, the cupbearer, to eventually say, oh, I know a guy in jail. And then he was put in charge, put in charge of everything, and he, he saved his family's life because of the, the drought and the famine that was hitting and he saved all their lives. And what is that? He saved the lineage of who? Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just unbelievable when we get to look backwards to see the unique things that God does, the unique ways that God does it. You didn't want to lose that job, 
but because you lost that job, X, Y, and Z. God uses troubles. He uses good things. He uses bad things. He uses evil people. God used something and whatever he wants. And you don't see it many times, but even in our own lives, we can look back and we can see things that happen in our lives. So I was a principal at Oswego School District. I was doing pretty well for a 30-whatever-year-old as a principal, financially speaking, successfully in my career speaking. Everything was going up, if you will. My buddy uh, was a superintendent out at a Christian school in Phoenix, Arizona. He invited Sherry and I for a long weekend to come out there. So we went out there in, in 2008, I believe, Maybe it was 2009, and, and we spent time with him and his wife and his kids and, and time at the school, and, and he entertained the option or, or the thought process of me serving in a ministry of Christian education. I don't know, buddy. I'm not quite sure if that's what God wants. And, and as Sherry and I kept praying about it, we felt pretty strong about it, that, you know what, this could be a great opportunity for me to serve in a ministry. It meant a complete change financially, but it was a great opportunity. Well, I, I started having some trouble in my life, I think because of those prayers. And, and it was almost like I had a, a, a target on my back. And, and, and I'm like, why? Why are these troubles happening? Well, I, part of it was I think is I, I had said, you know what, I'm not going to look at any other Christian school except for the one in Phoenix with my buddy. I, I do feel called that I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to take it slow, but I'm only going to do it if my buddy uh, has a position open. He had one lady that was a principal there in the elementary, and, and she was possibly going to retire. So I was just kind of waiting for that. Well, I had two major situations. I don't re even recall what they were. I remember one was with a, with a parent, uh, a dad of one of the kids at my school. Don't remember what the second one was at all. And they were, uh, they were um, not as much Job, but it really was bringing me down. And I remember uh, I, I was in the shower, and the Holy Spirit hit me and said, Phil, stop narrowing me down. Don't say that you are only going here. You've always been willing to listen to God and go anywhere. And right then, I kind of broke down and just said, I'm all yours, God. I will go anywhere you want me to go. I walk, walk out of the shower, get dressed. I have a text. One of the situations was resolved. The district administration texted me. I mean, it's early in the morning. I have no idea how or why. I go into work that day. I mean, it probably was 7.30 by the time I got into work. The other situation was resolved in that exact same day. I applied to one school in Indiana. They called me up and, and basically hired me. We went out to Indiana. Didn't know why. We didn't know anyone in Indiana. We didn't know anyone at the church. We didn't know anyone at the school. But we went to Indiana to serve God. Why is God doing this? My, my, my dad said, Phil, you're crazy. You're leaving your job. You're leaving all this stuff. You're crazy. 
I think I took a 47% pay cut. I don't remember the exact figure, but in the, that hits my head. It was not the wisest from the world standpoint, but I was serving God. It wasn't long after we were there. I told you the story about uh, my friend Elijah, who we lost in, in the adoption situation. But we met a family there. We met a family. I think we have a picture here. So this is Matt and Amy Swartz, and they had adopted uh, two beautiful children from where? From where, Reggie? Ethiopia. Yeah. They adopted two children from Ethiopia. Uh, the little girl is Zana. Maybe it's Jana. I can't remember how to pronounce it. And then the boy, that's Bo. Bo is Reggie's first cousin. Bo's mom is sisters with Reggie's birth dad. That's Bo's first cousin. So we call them Uncle Matt and Aunt Amy now. Well, we see these adorable family. They have two other children besides these children, and we connect with them. We went through some tough times in Indiana at times. I was named superintendent a week after I got there from being a principal, and that was great, but that was when a lot of things happened. I made a lot of decisions that for me and for my chaplain were focused on God, but some people didn't like that, including Satan. And I had a lot of targets on my back because I wasn't going to back down from serving Christ in, in several different ways. And, and so we had trouble that came, came that way. But God used that entire situation. If I, if I go through the whole process and understand why he did all of those things, if we wouldn't have met them, we wouldn't have known where they adopted their children through, which was a place in Florida. If we wouldn't have gone through that place in Florida, we wouldn't have known Reggie, and we wouldn't have known Jacob. You see, God used those things to help me to bring children into my life and hopefully teach them to love Jesus Christ and to serve Jesus Christ. God uses unique things all the time. God's ways are often misunderstood as well. That will be the next point. My family couldn't understand why we were leaving Oswego, why we were leaving that comfort. But we understood, Sherry and I understood, that God's ways are often understood, and we felt like we were in God's path. You know, people here in the church, maybe here, maybe around the world, capital C, people in the church are often can be confused by God. We, we, we've read uh, many people will say, Lord, Lord! What will God say? I never knew you. I never knew you. You see, there are hundreds of thousands of people that they go to church every single week. These people claim to be Christians, but they don't understand the ways of God. They don't understand. They don't understand, as we spoke of last week, that you must be born again. That you must confess that you are, you are a child of God, that you're a sinner. 
and not only just believe in Jesus, because even Satan and the demons believe in Jesus. But you need to trust that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, knowing that you are a sinner, that Christ lived his life, he died, he was raised again for you. People in the church often get confused. They say, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I go to church. I go to church. So I'm good. That's why they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I give to the church. Bill gives his talk, and, and I give. I, I put it in the, the box in the back. And, and you know what? Sometimes I even go online and give, give some extra. I, I serve at the food pantry. I, I give food to the, to the family down the street that has nothing. I give them presents during Christmas. All of these things are great things. But without Jesus Christ, they are worthless. Absolutely worthless. But sometimes we in the church get confused. And I, I'm thinking Habakkuk might have been thinking the same thing. What in the world? These are God's people. Why would you do this? Why? Why would, why would they, we be destroyed? These are God's people. Maybe they were thinking the same thing. You see, just like church people. See, church people, we think, oh, hey, we're good, man. We go to church. We give. We sometimes go twice a week. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Whoa, I can do basically anything I want. I'm part of the chosen. God chose us. He's not going to do anything to us. We are chosen people. Arrogance. And it's not just the church, but people in the world can be confused too. People of the world can get confused. Look at our scripture today. Very interesting to read. I almost wanted to stop more when I was reading it uh, earlier today. Let's just start. We're going to start at verse 9 of our verses today. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Oh, they love it. They're just gathering people. They're killing people. They're, they're taking them uh, back with them to serve. This is where you, you start to see the intermingling. I didn't talk about it in the original Habakkuk story, but this is where the, uh, they, were, they would intermingle groups of people to marry and, and to get their other culture involved. That's where the Samaritans come in. And that's why the Samaritans were, were seen as people that, ooh, we do, I don't want to touch them. Because that was part of their big plan, their master plan. Don't disrupt them, just add people to them. So much so that they take over their culture. At kings, they scoff. <laughs> Look at those. We don't care about them. We will kill them and destroy them. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. It's all about them. That's what the world is about. It's about you as a person. I could have it all. I'm the greatest. I'm the, I'm the best. Muhammad Ali said it. I'm the greatest, right? No one could beat them. That's the way we feel sometimes. Continuing on. Then they sweep 
by like the wind and go on. Guilty men. They are sinners. They are, they are people who have no clue that they're so guilty. No clue. But what do they say? Whose own might is their God. <laughs> did you see what I just did? Did you see that? It's like the guy uh, at the basketball court fires away a three-pointer and walks away. Uh-huh. Did you see that? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And, you know, we'd say that in our hearts. Some of you are smart. I'd say, I'd say I'm pretty good at this. I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy about this one. I'm not going to tell you that I'm the greatest at so-and-so things. But sometimes in my heart, that's the way I feel. Sometimes we don't say it out loud. But we, re we, we think in our minds, we are smart. I would never do that. I would never let my kids do that. I would never say that. I would never think that. I would never take that. I would never do that. We think that, and all of a sudden you've got to start to realize, whoa, hold up. Maybe we should be saying, greater men than I have done this. I better be careful. I better be careful. But these men, the Chaldeans, they're saying, I'm great. I'm great. We can take over. I have full control of this. We are the greatest. But who allowed this to happen? Who orchestrated this to happen? God. God orchestrated it. And your greatness, God's allowing you to be great at times, and he's allowing you to be a moron at other times. A fool. Because it's all about God. I, we, we, I forget this too much. That it's about God. It's about God. I lost control. Or I lost my place. He, he has the ability to take down, I did lose control too, to take down nations. God has the ability to take down nations. He has the ability to stop the sun. He has the ability to cause hard hearts, to strike down people. He has the ability to cause a donkey to talk. Even, he can even have the rocks talk if he wanted to. I remember that. I think God is in control. And I think he deserves all the credit. God uses evil people. He uses evil nations all the time because he's God. He's God. And he can use whoever he wants throughout history because he's God. No matter what God's ways have been and always will be, though, moral. They are moral. God's ways are moral. You see, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Habakkuk, our God Almighty, he's always righteous 
in his decisions. Always righteous. Everything he does. The righteousness of God is one of the most prominent attributes of God in the scriptures. So this next sentence, I'm going to look for everyone's eyes. I want everyone to see me. I want everyone to hear me. Here's, here's the sentence I want you to listen to. God always, always, always does what is right, what should be done, and that he does it consistently without partiality or prejudice. I'm going to say it one more time so you can digest it. God always, always, always does what is right, what should be done, and that he does it consistently without partiality or prejudice. Amen? God is perfect. God's righteousness is a natural expression of his holiness. It's a natural expression. He has to be righteous to be holy. And God is infin infinitely pure. Throughout scripture, we learn that God is the author and writer of history. That'll be the next one, Mark. God is, is the author and writer of history. Every single decision that God has made has been righteous as he's told the story. I, I, I think of Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? Abraham's like, God, can you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 50 righteous people there? I think he started with 50. He worked his way all the way down. God was using that opportunity, probably because of the righteousness of Lot. He was using that opportunity to teach Abraham about righteousness because he said, Abraham, I want you to lead my nation. Lead my people. God is always righteous. You see, God always has a plan, and his plan, it never fails. It absolutely doesn't fail. He's not a chess player. He's not trying to figure out what Satan's going to do. You know, you and I, we're, we're chess players. We're trying to examine the, the situation like, okay, if I move that rook over there and that king over there, uh, I'm going to nail you with my queen on a diagonal. God's not doing that. God's, God's not in Vegas counting cards. He's not. He doesn't need to count the cards. He doesn't need to play. All of it's his anyway. He doesn't have a, a cheat sheet up his sleeve that he's taking out. Oh, oh, that's what I should do. Oh, that's a good idea. Stuff it back in. He's not Googling his way through history. Bill and I often talk about that, how we Google our way through things. I fixed a dryer, a washing machine. I built a kitchen all through Google. That God's not doing that. He's not doing that. God is the author. He is choosing to have the Chaldeans come take control of the nation. He is allowing Nebuchadnezzar to think that he and the, and, and the, the Chaldeans, that they are all that, that they're so cool, that they're so tough. He's allowing them to be puffed up like that. Why? 
because God's perfect. He's perfect in every way. And he knew that through this process, who would be glorified, who would be honored in the end? Himself. You see, that's what God does. He takes us through things and he allows himself to be honored in the end. Because God is perfect. God is righteous. I think of the blind beggar. John chapter 9. Josh, I believe, taught on the blind beggar as well. And you give us some thoughts to ponder. See, God's answer isn't what we want or isn't what we expect many times. You think the story of the beggar from, from John, you see, the, the man was blind from birth. You guys probably know the story already. He was blind from birth. And, and, and the disciples are walking with Jesus, and, and they're walking by, and they see this guy who's, who's begging. I don't know what he has in his hand. Nowadays, we'd see him out with a can or with a box in front of him, maybe a sign that someone wrote for him. But he's begging. And the disciples said, Oh, who sinned, this man or his parents? They wanted to learn. They wanted to understand, why is this guy blind? Immediately, Jesus shuts that whole thought out. He said that it, that it was not one of the reasons why the man was blind. Here's what Jesus said. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we have to hit the pause for a moment. It's a grown man. We learn about that later in that, in that chapter. He's a grown man. He's been blind since birth. And somehow, God might be displayed in him? Don't you think that maybe he was praying, his, his mom and dad were praying through the years, oh, please just heal him. Let's call him Johnny. Heal Johnny. Let, let, let's please just heal him. And Johnny, when he got old enough and understood, because it says that he went to the synagogue, I'm sure because his, his parents wanted to go there, so he was going there at least for some time. He knew about Moses. He understood about God's ways. So I bet he was praying. But I probably got tired about it. I'm never going to get healed. There, first of all, there's, there wasn't medicine, medical stuff that, that could create that miracle from another person. God's not going to heal me. And you just give up. You stop praying. How about you guys? Do you grow tired of praying about something? You get tired of praying for your brother for 35 years and he hasn't committed his life to Jesus Christ yet? He's still acting like an idiot to everybody? Are you praying for him still? Or are you growing tired? Your spouse? Your children? Your co-workers? How about that sin that you have that 
for some reason you can't get rid of? Are you, are you just tired of it and say, I'm giving in, whatever, I don't care? That life situation, that sickness, that ailment that you're dealing with, are you praying to God about it or are you just getting tired? Have you been praying for help and you feel like God's just not listening anymore? I argue that we truly need to be in more prayer. We need to be in more prayer. I've said this probably a half dozen times from this pulpit that I need to be praying more. I need to be praying for, for my love for Christ. I need to be praying for my servanthood to him, strength, wisdom, patience. I need to be praying for my family more. I need to be praying for uh, my neighbors, for you. We need to be digging in with our knees on the ground, praying. Sometimes our problem is that we need to change our perspective. That'll be the second part of this pondering. We need to change our perspective. So this man, he became a beggar, because that was probably how he was going to get money. He, he didn't know other ways, probably, at least that's what we can deduct, of how to serve God, how to serve himself. You know what? Sometimes we have that issue. We don't know what, what to do. I just fill in the blank. I'm just a painter. I'm just a grandma. I just work at this company over here. I'm retired. I don't know how to serve God. I'm just going to live out my days. I'm a kid in fourth grade. I don't know how to serve God. I don't need to serve God. My dad's doing that. So many times we think that we don't have the ability to serve God where we're currently at. We just need to change our perspective. We need to see things in a different way. We need a fresh look on things. I, I imagine this blind man that, that he was hearing this conversation going on. He could hear the conversation going on, and, and I imagine as Jesus got closer and was talking to him, Jesus reached out and touched his hand, and he stood him up. That's just how I picture it. It doesn't say that in the scripture. That's what I picture. His whole perspective is now changing because the king of kings has now touched him. He wasn't healed, but what's going on here? When we get face-to-face -face with Christ, whether we feel like we could see him or not, our lives are about to be changed. That's why we dig into scripture. That's why we pray. That's why Habakkuk needs to continue praying, continue to seek God. We need to change our perspective. In order for us to get right with God, we often need to change our position on things. Sometimes we get stuck in that spot, and that's all we're going to do. We've got to change our position. We need to humble ourselves, too. I know we're going a little bit long. I'm going to hustle up. We need to humble ourselves in where we are with God and where we are in our lives. And we need to trust that, that God can see us and that he can see a much bigger picture than we. This blind man couldn't see anything. 
God could see a lot more than him. And that's the same as us. We are blind to so many things. But God can see it all. Finally, we need to be patient. We need to be patient. Just like I'm causing you to be patient right now. Habakkuk, he was losing his patience. God, why? Come on, answer. This is troubling. Here it comes. Nebuchadnezzar, I can, I can hear him. He's on his way. But we need to be patient with God. I'm sure this man was tired of praying about his blindness. But you need to be patient. How can you tell a man who's blind to be patient? How can you tell somebody who's struggling with something for so long to be patient? Somebody who, whose kid will not commit to Jesus Christ, how can you tell them to be patient? Somebody who can't get rid of a, a sickness or can't get rid of a, a, a thorn in their side, how do you teach them patience? See, Jesus said to this man who was blind so that God could be glorified. Sometimes God allows you to go through elongated things. Even this man who is blind since birth for one reason. He was blind for one reason according to Jesus' words, to God's words. So I could be glorified. Wow. Why are you taking me through this, God? So I could be glorified. Why, why is this happening? So I could be glorified. You know this man? Not only did he receive sight with the spit of Jesus and a little bit of mud, but we see just down the, down the road at the end of that chapter that he not only received sight where he could see, but he ended up bowing down and worshiping God. That's where we want to get to. Make me blind, God, is what you want to pray. Make me suffer. Make me go through this. We don't pray that, do we? We don't pray for suffering. Suffering usually comes before glory. It's not our glory. It's God's. I'm going to give it away. A little spoiler. The only way I could say it best, I think, is Habakkuk's response at the end, chapter 3. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Nothing's working here. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in who? In the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. No, all of this is going crazy. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on my high places. God is good all the time. God is good. God's always good. Praise the King of Kings.